Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Hello and welcome everyone. We are thrilled to have you join us today. My name is Ashley Thompson. I'm joined here by Mark Pittman. Mark um, is not only a friend of mine, um, but he is also the founder of the Concord Leadership Group um, and FundraisingCoach.com. He has also been the executive director of the Nonprofit Academy. He's an advisory um, panel member of Rogare, which, if you're familiar, is a, is a prestigious international fundraising think tank. Um, so he certainly has plenty of thoughts to share. Mark is uh, the author of Ask Without Fear, as well as other research reports, and his latest book, which is why we're here today that we're going to be talking about, is The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Um, Mark is um, not, however, one of those people that um, cannot do what he teaches. Um, He has been helping leaders for many years, um, especially leaders in nonprofits, lead their teams to be more effective and stress less. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. It's like, oh... Your introduction, I want to play it when I'm having down days because you made it sound. My head was starting to swell. <laughs> I know I know that is not true. Um, I, know that oh. is, I mean, one of the reasons why I think you make such a good um, spokesman for this and um, advocate on leadership is that you do bring a lot of humility to this topic. And you bring a lot of humility to this topic in your book, too. Um, this is... For, for those who have not read, this is the, the book is a surprising gift of doubt. Um, I've actually read it three times now. Again, just for this interview to refresh my memory. But, you know, you, you, this is not a traditional leadership book that you've written here. Um, you really kind of focus less on the, the sort of traditional practices and time management. Um, and it's really, it feels sort of like a roadmap for personal growth as a leader. So can you tell Thank us you. why? You're welcome. Can you tell us why you wrote this particular book in this way? Absolutely. The short version of why I wrote the book was people ask me what I do as an executive coach. And they'd, I'd say, oh, they'd say, what, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm an executive coach. And they'd say, oh, okay. And then they'd get this confused look. And they're, so what do you do really? Sort of like when I first became self-employed, my parents thought I was unemployed. Uh, and I may have been at that point, but I was self-employed in my mind. So they thought I could do other things, too. Um, so I wanted to – I didn't like that people didn't understand what I did. And I started to think about 15 years into executive coaching. So this is about five years ago. Um, I started figuring out where – what are the tools I use to help people? And I came up with this kind of diagram of these are the, the general tools that I use to help people. And that helped me to realize, oh, I need to explain where people are at in their journey because not everybody's ready to use these tools in the same way here. There's a certain time in your life that you're open to the learning and you're open to to the growth that can happen in the stage that I work with people in. So then I moved it, uh, you know, kind of took a bigger approach just to see what are the where, where are people are in their journey. And it's been really wonderful to be able to have people identify themselves as this is on the, there is a journey here. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about some books is it seems like this is it. This is the only way to live. You have to be this way. Um, and I really firmly believe that our world is better if there's a lot of different voices and a lot of different perspectives. So I try to, I try to make it more of a, hopefully more of a choose your own adventure 
without it being, you know, with still having really deliverable content that will help people with their leadership. So that's a great place to sort of segue and talk about the, the, the contents of the book and the, and the quadrants that you've outlined, because, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I think that this last few years has also presented is a, a real sort of um, attention being paid to well, what do I love? What brings me joy? How do I want to live the rest of my life? Um, and so the, the, the quadrants themselves, I think are, are the beginnings of a roadmap to figure out where are you? And then, you know, we, let's expand from there on um, on how to dive into one of those. But can you give a little bit of overview for our for our audience about the quadrants and, and what's in each? So the journey that I talk about, if if uh, for those of you that are listening, if you're listening to this as a recording and you're driving, don't do this. But if you have a piece of paper, you could put a, a little four quadrant, you know, just a cross marks on your on a piece of paper. The top of the vertical is confidence, and the bottom is uh, unsure or insecurity. And then the horizontal one is your inputs. It's external on one side and internal on the other. The, and that's how I bring, oh, there you go. Yes. Ah, <laughs> I happen to have that book right here, too. <laughs> um, so the, that's how I kind of voice the journey. It's, there's, a, there's confidence and unconfidence, in, uh, insecure, I mean, in, internal inputs and external inputs. So the first stage you get into, you, for leaders, and, and again, to contextualize this, I think we're all leaders uh, because leadership to me is influence. And so we're always influencing people, whether we're in line at the grocery store and we're influencing whether somebody else is going to choose our line or not. There's all sorts of things we're doing to influence. So some people have positional authority, but I think all of us can be leaders. So in the first quadrant, quadrant one is where you have high confidence because somebody finally sees that about you. You're like, Ah, you can do this. Take this team. I want you to take this project and run with it. And you you follow what you've seen done. You have the teachers, the coaches, the parents, either good or bad, that have done their models show you how to act. So you act like them. The typical, a very typical um, example of this is the introvert person who follows an extrovert boss. So the extrovert boss had all the energy from going around, high-fiving, and, you know, didn't need everything all figured out, was able to kind of make things up as they go along. And so you try to do that, too. Um, so growing up, actually, I had a weird family because I had school work, uh, school, but I also had Pittman family work because I was a Pittman. So I had to read positive motivational books. I had to listen to tapes. I had to, um, you know, go to seminars and rallies and stuff with my family, um, which I'm really grateful for, but some of those motivational speakers would say, if you're a leader and you turn around and no one is following you, you're just out for a walk. So, so that drives your confidence down. That's where you start moving into quadrant two of like, this isn't working. My boss seemed to be really doing that well, but when I try to high five people, we miss and I sometimes hit their foreheads and I get drained from this. This is just not me. I'm like contorting myself into something other caricature of myself um and so you start for you're so aware of because our schooling and our our systems and our culture are so aware of what you're lacking what is it you're missing and how do you fill that and we have multi-billion dollar industries that industry is telling you what you're missing whether it's on your face and the blemishes on your face or all different things you know just that that stick of gum is going to help you have the the relationships of your life or whatever it's like you lack relationships so buy our gum so we're trained into seeing what's missing which is a helpful skill but it's not 
always, it can be overplayed. So in quadrant two, which we start experimenting with stuff, we're like, all right, I need time management skills, or I need more effectiveness, or I need to cast vision, or I need to figure out how to get more energy, or I need to, in the 80s, it was, I need to have the power tie. What's the red tie? Is that the power tie? And I need to know the power words. So whatever, there's a cultural influence in this too. But we most, uh, my experience has been most leaders stay here. They go from the webinars and the certificates and the degrees and the um, and the programs, to, they lurch from program to program. It's sort of like they get one, it feels great, and then it, they don't internalize all of it. And so they only get a part of it, and they realize, wow, I missed a lot of this, so I'll go for the next one. The next one seems like the real one. Uh, I worked at a hospital that did this. We had, like, fish sticks one year or two, and then we did some other management in a box fit program, and the benefit was we all started getting a common vocabulary, and we were all able to kind of talk together with, uh, about it with each other. The sadness was we saw how much we moved. We, we didn't stick with anything long enough to actually internalize it. We, we got it, the happy feelings. What's awkward is that the, what I referred to before, in quadrant two, in that experiment quadrant, you have this success track record behind you. So people know, hey, this, this gal's going to do it. They, they, I trust them. They're, I have confidence in them. But you as the leader are so full of all the doubt. I'm missing so much. There's so much I didn't know. There's so much I'm totally getting wrong. So that is where I think is the ma- where the magic happens. Is right if I keep going, I'm I'm riffing. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Um, so the uh, where the next step of that is where you're so racked with doubt that you're either going to say I'm broken. How do I fix this? Which is a good quadrant two question. And we live in a time where there's a lot of aids for that, a lot of uh, tools and, and therapy and stuff that can help. But the, my premise and my working with leaders has proven that sometimes the that what am I missing isn't the right question. The doubt can push us and can get so big that it pushes us to ask, what if I'm the right person for this role? What if I'm exactly what the team needs? What if this organization is exactly the voice the sector needs? And that pushes you into listening to the internal stuff. Um, and it, starting that, that, the nudges, the things you've been told to not follow. You've been told, don't feel, you know, don't listen to your emotions, listen to your thoughts. Your thoughts are the, the, the engine of the train, emotions are the caboose. You know, just squash your thoughts down and, you know, whatever you think, your emotions will follow. You move away from that and start listening to the, in the introvert's case. I get tired when I hang out with unscheduled time with my team. Hmm. And then you start trying to process. Who, what does that say about me? What are ways that I could do this? Well, I could schedule times of retreat or closed door times around the times that I'm interacting with the team without an agenda. I could do that. Or I could ask my team to bring an agenda to me for each meeting so that I know what's expected. Those are, there's a multiple, multiplicity of ways that are okay, but it helps you to, to operate more clearly. And in quadrant three, this is where it's the quadrant three, the analyzed quadrant. This is where all the magic happens because you start building up a vocabulary for, oh, I'm different, maybe not broken. Maybe that, that bug is actually a feature. You know, maybe that thing that we thought was a bug in the program is actually a real benefit and I get to contribute this to the world. And that's when you cause your confidence to keep going, to rise again to quadrant four, which is what I call the focus quadrant because you have an awareness. It's not that, ah, you know, there's no angelic choir in Nirvana because you're still living on a planet with billions of humans like yourself. There's still going to be chaos and, and problems, but you have the full map of the leadership journey. You understand that I can go to who do I need to look to, what programs do I need to learn from, or what what tools do I need to kind of process why we're do, responding differently than everybody else appears to be, and that gives you that focus. 
That was sorry. That was, I mean, I could keep going, but I realized I just had a whole monologue there. <laughs> well, you know, no, you know, what's great is it, I I identify so much with my own journey through you know the the sort of way that you've mapped out each one of these, and and you know, it's funny is when you talk about you know quadrant one. I see myself, I w- when I was 15 years old, I was hired to be a recruiter at the Community Blood Bank in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I was doing a job that nobody under 30 without a college degree had done. And so I was playing the part. When you talk about mimicking, I wore, I quite literally cut my hair. I wore my mother's suits and would go and pretend to be a lot older and pretend like I knew what I was doing. And I was just mimicking everyone around me, you know, fake it till you make it. And yeah. so... It, it's, it's, it resonates with me so much in such a literal way of how I have evolved in my own career and where I am now, uh, which is certainly probably somewhere in the quadrant three. And, you know, so it's, it's nice to hear that there's some, there's not necessarily some nirvana. It's, it's about being a, awareness of self and being able to know how to lean into your own natural abilities. So well, let's the fake it to about- make it, the fact that you said that too is I think that's a good one because there's good and bad about fake it to make it. So there's a fake it to make it like for you in that space. I totally get that. It was like me as an elementary school cool about that fake it to make it is there's a point where some people will call us into spaces where we are equipped to do. We just don't know that. Um, it's that whole saying when you're in the picture, it's hard to see the frame or when you're in the jar, it's hard to read the label of the bottle. So there is an ability. There's a, it's knowing when. Okay, like for me, it's a fear is a trigger uh, of when I start feeling afraid of something that people are calling me into. I've now seen that as a challenge of, ooh, there must be, there could be a great, there could be a whole another cavern here that I didn't even know existed in this being of Mark Pittman. Whereas there's a fake it till you make it that becomes really toxic, where it becomes the mask that you put up in front of people. And you're like, don't talk to me. I'm the, I, you know, just talk to the mask. Don't look at the man behind the curtain because, you know, the Wizard of Oz, because you don't want people to find out how, who you are. But if there's, there's, so there is an ability, there is a, a natural growth process for each of us in every stage. It seems like we go through where sometimes we have to kind of put on your mom's clothes and try to see how do we figure this out until we learn how to make our own suits. Uh, but I just love that picture of 15 year old you. <laughs> That's great. Good for you. I love that. You said, and you focus a lot on this book on the internal rather than the external. So as you were saying, you know, it's not this, you know, this is the way you stand at the podium and this is the way that you talk to the, your subordinates. And, you know, it's not about how you organize your calendar necessarily, but it's about how you do things in a way that are authentic to you and leaning into your own skills. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the, about identity um, specifically, but you really, you know, have outlined this, you know, hardwiring identity and gold. But I wonder if maybe we could talk about that identity piece. Absolutely. And that's where, so if you're uh, the the hardwiring identity and goals diagram that I have that uh, Ashley's talking, referring to, it was hard for me because it's organic and flowing. It shouldn't be sequential. So I'm really glad you're starting with identity. The identity part um, for that I've, when I'm working with, with clients is it's like our phones, like my Apple phone has an Apple operating system. Uh, the Android phones have an Android operating system. Blackberries have a Blackberry uh, operating system. I think they're still around, um, but the human beings operating system is story. Um, and there's been wonderful studies by Kendall Haven and a bunch of other people that show narrative and storytelling uh, narrative skills help you, us learn math. They help us learn logic. They help us, um, contextualize whenever we're given input, we're often trying to fix it into a story. Um, we see something and we try to build a story around why is it that way. 
somebody doesn't respond to us and we start internalizing and the story becomes, are they upset with me or do they just have earphones in? Uh, this, so there's this, this type of story. And so the identity part, there's three levels. Each of the, each of the big areas I give three levels of. One of them that my friend Jessica Sharp tell, suggests people do is just uh, as a kind of a catalog. Oh, I'm sorry, Tracy, Mr. Blackberry. Uh, Sad moment for the BlackBerry. I used to love mine too. Um, the uh, the cataloging your self talk. So taking, she has her clients take a, a legal pad of paper and just list non judgmentally through the day. And this is the self awareness you were talking about, Ashley, of um, non judgmentally. What are you thinking about yourself? What are you saying about yourself? And then after the course of 24 hours or a week, looking at it and just sitting, you know, in a safe space, reading through it and asking yourself, would you talk to a friend like this? And if the answer is no, then it, the invitation is to be a better friend with yourself. So that, I mean, that to me is such a powerful exercise because we're usually quite critical of ourselves because we think that we're not trustworthy. And so we need to be really, really critical of ourselves because otherwise we're going to really screw up. There's a portion of our life where that might have been true. But as so many things in our life, the armor that's built to protect us becomes the cage that that imprisons us. And that critical thinking starts We've outgrown some of that, those areas. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it, the, the identity and hardwiring resonated with me personally as, you know, you know because it, it does speak to those core beliefs that we hold about ourselves that, that not only could they be old stories for us, it could be yeah. someone else's story. Something, you know, that a sibling, a bully put on us, someone else put on us that wasn't necessarily ours to own, but we've carried it around and let it dictate how we view ourselves in the world for so long, whether it's true or not. So the, the idea of, you know, us being our own worst critic, I think, is, is certainly key. But you also sort of take it beyond that in that it's not just about the stories that we tell ourselves, um, but, it's, but it's also about our strengths and our abilities and leaning into those in a very specific and intentional way. Um, so because that's the, the, the flip side of that coin is it's not just the limitations, but it's also the abilities. So can you talk about that? Um, I was working with a team just before the pandemic, got to fly in, do a training with their entire leadership team and, and uh, staff. Um, and the one of the the, in, the organizational tropes, the organizational stories that they were telling themselves was we suck as employers. We can't keep them. We can't keep new staff. They come in and they keep going out. We're like a revolving door. The facts were they didn't keep staff. <laughs> they were a revolving door. But as we worked through the um, through the day, somebody asked, wait, could we retell the story as we're getting a lot of first time job people? They don't know how to be in a job at all. So we're training up a workforce like McDonald's used to do for a generation, we are taking a lot of people and preparing them for lifelong careers of service. And you could see everybody sit up a little straighter. Like it's the same data. People are still churning through, but instead of having this desire that we're going to create the next 20 year employee, knowing we're only going to have them temporarily. And what can we do to get our objectives as a job done, but also help them be successful in their career became a much nobler purpose. And it played to their strengths that they're really actually good at that. They had really, they were good at preparing people to care, to learn, to look at details, but they just weren't giving themselves credit for that. Well, and that, that's also an interesting point in that, you know, the, the turnover rate is, 
so high for nonprofit professionals as well, right? We've been talking about this for so many years prior to the pandemic and the great resignation. So, you know, the great resignation, you know, I think just exasperated <laughs> that perhaps, um, and certainly when it's more competitive in terms of salaries and everything else. So I, I love the reframing of what is our role in the journey of our employees' lives, right? So as, as they're yeah. thinking about that and, and perhaps even the refocus on that of, of thinking about professional development, you know, we know that employees that have that additional professional development are often happier employees and might actually stay longer, right? So maybe the reframing actually helps support the end goal of, of retaining employees longer anyways. Um, so, so I think that's great. Awesome. Well, assessments and values, identifying our values are the two places I find people have the easiest on-ramp into quadrant three, uh, in part because assessments often happen in quadrant two. Like you said, a lot of employers use assessments. Um, the They become dangerous when they become constrictive. Um, they're, they become uh, dangerous when they become labels that can find you can't possibly do this because you're not this color or you're not this let you know this shape or or this number. Um, but what I love about assessments is that they give us a common vocabulary as a team to talk about or personally individually they give us a vocabulary to realize oh other people see the world differently than I do, and as a team they give us the ability to talk together in less personal ways about incredibly personal things. So how does one go about changing this perception of leadership? You spoke a little bit about about being able to lean into unique strengths. And how do we take what is good from things that could be sort of inherently more sort of typically known as, you know, traits that are, you know, from women versus men or people of color? We, you know, how do we do this in a lens that isn't coming from a place of privilege, but actually opens our minds to where we actually can allow unique strengths to actually foster better success. Usually what, if you read the books that have been coming out uh, or have come out over the last hundred years or so, it basically is to be a good leader, you need to be a white man, married white man that doesn't have any household responsibilities and any familial responsibilities because that's, that's not your job. And so there's a lot of people that still have that, that myth in their head and that's their mold that they're working against, even if they're not white men. But that's what our culture, well, there, I, we, we won't go into it, but there are systemic, there's centuries of systems that have been crafted, handcrafted to make it so people that present and look like me have no, don't have to earn the right to be heard in the room. Absolutely. You know, I, I, um, I remember reading a, an article, um, a few years ago about how the, um, the top, I think it was the top 50 most successful companies had more women leadership. Um, in their executive ranks than other companies that didn't. And, you know, it made so much sense to me in that, um, in that, yes, of course, <laughs> where you have more rounded perspective and points of view, yeah. you're naturally going to be more successful. And I think it's the same thing of, you know, the movement now is we're, we're being much more intentional in thinking about how are our boards constructed? How are our leadership teams constructed um, in the nonprofit world as well um, that provides that more diverse um, and more rounded perspective than ever before. So it, it makes it makes a ton of sense. So I want to I wanted to wrap a little bit in talking about integrity. You, mm. you talk about integrity in the book um, uh, around time management and, and how you sort of steer yourself. How can how can our audience think about integrity as it is to help be a, a way to self guide themselves? 
the when um in the model with hardwiring and assessments um identity goal setting vision mission values as you work all those things and you start becoming aware of yourself and how you operate that's where the integrity i think about is it's integrated you start firing on all cylinders you start being able to have more understanding of why you choose the things you do and um and we live with uh some of the structures of of our organizations are often not, and nonprofits in particular are not built for HR. They're built to solve a problem. Like founders typically don't come in thinking, I want to build a, t- a great organization that's really healthy and has strong leadership development potential. They just want to fix a problem. <laughs> they want to preserve history or save children or feed people or house people. And as that grows, they build this team around them and they weren't equipped to do the organizational leadership. Um, and that's not a failing at all. It's just honesty. They weren't equipped to do that. So, um, right. hopefully books like this and, the, and interviews like this will help people to realize there are tools out there to grow in the ways that you want it, they want to grow. Mark, I thank you so much for your time. I know that as always, you and I could sit and talk for another three hours about this topic, um, because yes. I always walk away with so many wonderful new insights. So I would encourage, um, you know, all of our audience to go and check out those other resources. They certainly have been valuable to me. Um, and, and, um, I take away yet even more new insights, um, from this discussion today. So thank you so much for your time and thank you everyone in our audience for, for attending today's session.